When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for the first time in 2022 is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy, as we look at some of the bigger stories of the moment. And Tim, I think you want to start by looking at uh, Boris Johnson in the hope, of course, that over the next few days, um, he is still Prime Minister. Indeed. And, uh, you know, what do you do with a problem like Boris? And he is problematic uh, because he so divides opinion, not only amongst people in the electorate, but also increasingly uh, amongst people in his own party. And there are those who think that he is a lucky general, Mm. that he has delivered uh, the largest majority the Conservative Party have had in Parliament for many a long time, uh, that he's a brilliant campaigner, that this is midterm blues, and that he can um, regroup, uh, he, you know, he can learn mm. and he can win. There are others, uh, and one example is Alastair Heath in today's uh, Daily Telegraph, uh, who thinks that basically he's lost the plot. Um, it isn't just about, you know, the hiccups and the and the bumps and, 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 the, and the putative scandals, you know, the, the garden party, uh, uh, mm. early on in the COVID um, uh, process, but that actually he strategically lost the plot and that he uh, isn't capturing um, their desired upside of Brexit, um, that uh, he is raising taxes, uh, that he's not getting to grips with some issues of uh, immigration, um, that he's not cutting regulation um and in it he's not even delivering many of the projects for for example northern powerhouse mm. that he's allowed covid to slightly um sidetrack him and that he might not have the time uh to have a sufficiently good story to tell the electorate at the end of the electoral cycle as we near the next election so opinions are divided and i think it's very precarious i'm not sure simon that they're going to get rid of him uh, in the next few weeks. They'll probably wait to see how things bed down with the local elections in May. But I think it's unlikely, I you know, I think it's 40, 60 unlikely that he will be uh, the Conservative candidate or the leader um, um, uh, 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 and the Prime Minister by the time of the next election. I think his, um, I think his star is fading. Last time we spoke about him, you used the phrase lucky general. Um, and he did seem to have the instinct for presenting ideas in a way the public liked, even people who didn't necessarily care for conservatism before. But as you say, his star seems to be fading. Suddenly, almost everything he does wrong. I remember back to the early days of the pandemic. And of course, we were all very, you know, people were worried because Boris did actually get COVID very seriously, was in intensive care in, in hospital. And then afterwards, for a while, people were saying what it had changed him. And I wonder whether 
that has changed him because I, I can't really think back of the things that are very Boris-like that he's done ever since. So I think generationally, he thinks of himself as being liberal in terms of social policy, mm. you know, on so, social values in terms of uh, gay rights, LGBTQ, um, sort of empowering people, including he's not a racist. You know, he's not an old sort of patrician, paternalistic, or indeed traditional aristocratic Tory. Okay, he's, he's liberal. Uh, economically, he's a fiscal conservative, uh, I think, by orientation. But I think the other thing he is, and this is often really not picked up on, he's actually um, quite influenced by the approach that Michael Heseltine adopted in the 1980s to growth and development, and particularly Michael Heseltine's approach to inner city areas and, and the development of places like Docklands, you know, the old uh, Docklands Development um, Corporation. And, and so Boris thinks that uh, if you can splash the cash and if you can, you know, unleash the potential of places like Manchester, Liverpool, Hull, Leeds, Sheffield, you know, all those great northern mm. areas and put in better infrastructure, then not only will it help uh, those areas and, and aid growth and ultimately productivity, uh, but it would help the electoral fortunes of the Conservative Party. Now, that doesn't sit easily with the Conservative Party, just as in some ways Michael Heseltine was always regarded, you know, as being someone on the left. But the question is, uh, it's an issue of statecraft. And do you see those investments as a cost? And therefore, you, you interpret them as being sort of centre left and uh, as perhaps Alastair Heathwood, sort of socialistic, or do you actually see them as an investment for the engines of, of capitalist growth, if you believe mm -hmm. them? So I think the Tory party is very, very torn on him. Um, the other thing I would say is um, there are times, of course, where parties get the jitters and they think that leaders have run their course and they're no longer useful. One example of that was Margaret Thatcher, um, in that sort of period, that window of 1991, mm. and the way that, that she felt. She was never not re-elected to be Prime Minister by the British electorate. She was got rid of uh, by what was then called, in, in, a, in, a, in a completely different world, really, um, the men in grey suits. That was before we had so many women in Parliament and, and, and that growth really took off. Um, and similarly, um, we know the angst and rancour between number 10 Downing Street when Tony Blair was Prime Minister, mm. but next door, Gordon Brown at number 11. Again, um, Tony Blair was a winning politician, uh, but it was the Labour Party who got rid of him. Um, I often wonder what would have happened if Tony Blair had still been Labour leader and Prime Minister in 2010, and if he had faced that other great um, triangulating politician, David Cameron, that would have been a really exciting election to mm. the fourth. I wouldn't be able to call it. Um, and I think many politicians from those parties at that time often reflect, you know, I mean, Labour has paid a very, very big price um, and has been out of office for many years in getting rid of their winner, Tony Blair. You can argue that. And my goodness, didn't the Tories pay a very heavy price and were out for a long time when they got rid of Margaret Thatcher. So all I would do is caution people if they if they if they think that Blair, uh, sorry, that, 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 that Boris is one of those winning candidates, um, 
I would caution them against midterm jitters, take time to reflect, because the real question is, are they going to jettison a potentially winning prime minister that could get through the midterm blues, but again, gain electoral fortune? Or is the prime minister's time with the electorate over? Is the trust completely gone, not just midterm, but for long term? And can Boris really never come back? If they decide the latter, then the Conservative Party will do what the Conservative Party has always done. They will be swift, they'll be robust, and it won't be too long, it won't be many months before he is history and he's gone. And who might replace him? Because it's one thing getting rid of a leader, but um, it's another to bring about a, a new one. Are there obvious candidates to, to you? I mean, the Tory party is, as you point out on many occasions, a very broad church. It is. And it's been very broad under Boris, actually. Um, You know, it's used this big tent approach where it's sort of strayed into centre-left social democracy and higher taxes over to um, sort of uh, more uh, uh, interesting forms of conservatism, you know, trying to do that sort of Hesseltine project and talk about mm. it in the North. So it has been a big tent approach. I think the obvious candidates are people like Nadine Zahawi, uh, Liz Truss, um, and there'll be others that come forward. There could also be some unexpected names uh, uh, like Steve Baker, um, and I'm sure there will be others. It's always difficult to predict, but I think mm. they, people will put probably their hat in the ring. But the real question, and, and I have to say, this is really a question, I think, for, for the Labour Party as well. When I look at this parliament and I look across all the parties, I don't really see the really big totemic beasts of British mm. politics. You know, I don't, I don't look at Keir Starmer and think, wow, quite frankly, in the same way that I did in the late 90s and noughties about Tony Blair. Um, And this is the same, by the way, with electoral politics in in London. You know, when you had those great great characters, people like uh, Boris Johnson as mayor or Ken Livingston, Livingston, these were charismatic big beasts of the jungle and they could do a big job like be mayor of London. Boris is a big beast. He's messed up. Will he survive? Possibly not in the next year or so. But where are the big beasts um, and the charismatic, obvious leaders as contenders for these parties? Well, I don't know, but um, they're not obvious to me. Tim, thank you very much indeed. Time for us to take a breath and change to another topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. I'm in conversation for the bigger picture with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, um, where are we turning for our second topic? Well, I think we've got to look at um, uh, what's going on in uh, Eastern Europe and, and indeed um, in and around sort of Russia briefly um, and, and then think through some of the issues rising there because um, uh, it, it is obvious that there are huge tensions on the Russian-Ukrainian border and of course uh, this follows in the wake of um, 
uh, of, of Russian maneuvers with Belarusia last year. And, and also we've had recent maneuvers uh, between uh, Russian forces um, and uh, the internal political machinations of Kazakhstan. So Russia has uh, amassed uh, huge military forces um, on various parts of the Russian-Ukrainian border. Um, reports stray from anything from 100,000 uh, troops to 175,000. Um, uh, and there are talks going on uh, between, or there have been talks going on between uh, NATO and Russia about uh, opportunities to de-escalate what could become uh, uh, a real conflict. Uh, there are also clearly negotiations that are going on uh, between the United States, uh, uh, President Biden uh, and uh, Vladimir Putin and their respective foreign ministers and secretaries of state. Um, the Russians have put onto the table fairly robust demands. Uh, for example, they want um, uh, no one, no nation in Europe uh, to have nuclear weapons, a kind of return, you know, they're asking for us to, to, to abandon our deterrent and to adopt uh, unilateral disarmament. Um, and they're also demanding that Ukraine, which let's face it, is an independent, sovereign and, and hopefully democratic nation, uh, should never have the right, and their electorate should never have the right, to choose to join NATO. Uh, um, so, you know, there, there are some outlandish demands by Russia. But what's really extraordinary um, is that, that, that Russia uh, has deployed forces and Kazakhstan. And let's be clear here, on the morning of the 6th of January, Russian airborne troops, um, under a hasty, and people have missed this in the national press, under a hastily enacted mandate um, for the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is the, 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 the treaty organization signed between uh, Russia and a number of neighbors like Belarusia, uh, like Azerbaijan, upon the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, so it's a hastily erected mandate, a sort of an editorial job, if you will, of CSTIO. And then this somehow justified these um, uh, Russian forces landing in Kazakhstan. And what seems to happen, have happened under the guise of a peacekeeping mission, in inverted commas, is that, um, is that, um, part of the leadership of Kazakhstan have either been imprisoned or bumped off. And that, quite frankly, probably 160 people have died in skirmishes on the streets. Um, and anywhere between two and 10,000 people who were demonstrating against the leadership anyway and against high fuel prices and economic stagnation, um, basically hundreds and thousands of people have been imprisoned um, as the authorities take, including the Russians, take a tight grip on the situation. And the, dis the catastrophe of all this is, this is a result of a brittle, brittle, fragile leadership in Moscow who have long adopted the wrong economic approach. This is a country run by a kleptocracy. It is deeply corrupt and it's getting itself into a more authoritarian vortex of governance. And the only way it can survive is to sell this idea of 
building an empire, near empire abroad to somehow satisfy um, Russian public opinion, but the model itself is doomed. And there's no way in the 21st century is a Russian economy largely dependent on hydrocarbons with no brands that we know of or could, could even mention or speak of, no serious exports apart from armaments and, and gas and all the rest of it. You know, this is an absolute disaster. And the threat for us is that their model is so bankrupt, it isn't delivering the goods that they lash out and that inadvertently we end up with some kind of conflict on the uh, Russian-Ukrainian border that could in time infect so many friends in Eastern and Central Europe. Um, with a film due out soon about um, uh, Munich and Chamberlain, many people have been comparing what happened then to what's going on now. I don't know, we probably don't want to make any parallels, but what are the options for the, the West, as you point out? I mean, Putin's not going to back down particularly, is he? And yet at the same time, you don't really feel that NATO is in the in the greatest of health, or there'd be many members of NATO that were either willing or indeed physically able to come to the help of Ukraine. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, just in the way you described it there, Simon, you know, there are echoes here, aren't there, of Munich, of Anschluss, of the plebiscite, mm -hmm. of Sudeten, land, you know, I mean, of uh, Alsace-Lorraine, of all those catastrophic mm. events that led up to the Second World War, um, and there are many others that led up, of course, to the First World War. The, the real risk here is that the, 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 the talks don't go well, um, and that one side or the other makes a miscalculation, and that this strays beyond um, diplomacy, and that it becomes sort of um the talking stops and some kind of dreadful kinetic events you know starts to occur um, and i do think there is a risk of that now i don't believe for a second that vladimir putin wants war i think he wants negotiation i think he wants to be taken seriously um and i think he wants to be seen by the people at home to be doing well but he will go on pushing and trying to capture ground so long as he maintains this ineffective and declining model at home. Because the more it fails, the more he's gonna have to lash out. So we have to be very, very firm. And just as we made a mistake in the mid 1930s through the policy of appeasement, perhaps we should have stopped Hitler earlier I think we have to make it very clear that this behavior by Putin, where he does not accept the democratic choices of peoples within sovereign and neighboring states, that is unacceptable. And therefore, you know, the opportunity here is to remind him and if necessary, help him to adopt a, set, a different approach in his in his own homeland um you know russian people are great there is a lot of talent there's a lot of potential there this is a world of you know of, of literate talented bright people but for but history has been very cruel to them in the last four or five centuries and their potential has never been unleashed because they have the wrong model of governance and the wrong 
model of economics. So we should be loud and clear. We will stand four square. Um, and if the Russians make the mistake of, of, of using military action, they will pay a very heavy price. But that is not to say we won't encourage and support Russia, I think, to do things better internally. And the last thing is, and I've said it many times on this program, I do think that five, 10 years from now, there will be a schism, there will be a greater divide between China and Russia. Increasingly, China will want to use Russia as its extraction site. And, and China has a lot of money, and Russia is not that successful. Its economy is not great. And its standard of living, actually, of its population has been declining for some years now. So one of the reasons why Russia is actually getting more heavily involved in Kazakhstan is because they are worried about the growing influence of Beijing in that region. So this is also the beginning of a tussle between Beijing and Moscow. And how it goes forward will itself be fascinating. Fascinating and rather scary, Tim. Let's take another breather. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. On our final topic today, Tim, please. So really unusual piece. Um, I'm not, I have to say, I'm not a, a reader, I have to confess, of, of, of a website called Conservative Home, uh, because quite frankly, it's far too party political for me um, and far too um, sort of activist and pointy headed. Mm. But I suspect uh, there is a clue in the title. But yeah, but um, um, my good friend, he's a good friend because we were at school together. Um, and we've been friends for the best part of 40 years. Um, uh, he, he, he's, he wrote an article for, for Con Home called 10 Brexit Predictions That Have Not Transpired. And I just thought it was, it was a really brilliant article, not only because of the, the 10 points that are made and the argumentation, but it just so beautifully punctures um, elites, and those elites can be other commentators, people across all the political parties, civil servants. Mm. The this, is, this is Harry Fibbs. I don't think you mentioned his name. Yep. Exactly. Sorry, Harry Fibbs. So, you know, here are the 10 um, predictions that just didn't come true. First of all, Brexit was going to lead to huge numbers of the unemployed. Um, when we voted to leave the EU, we had 1.64 million unemployed, and the rate was 4.9. Of course, all kinds of people said it was going to go up. Well, now we've only got 1.4 million unemployed. Unemployment is down to 4.2. So the Treasury analysis, the CBI's estimate, everyone from the TUC, Nick Clegg, many Tories, and many others just mm. said that'd be true. Number two, many people said there was going to be a house price crash. Well, in June 2016, the average home in Britain was 214,000. It's now 268,000. There were those people who said that there was a risk of World War III. Um, there were people in NATO who argued this completely destabilised security. Uh, David Cameron uh, uh, made all kinds of pronouncements. Donald Tusk at the European Council warned that if, if Britain voted to leave the EU, it could destroy Western civilization. Uh, you know, I think, I think just Western civilizations can last for a few more weeks, Simon, uh, uh, months and years. <laughs> 
Um, number four, there was going to be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. Well, that hasn't actually come about. Five, EU national res res resident in the UK would be sent home. Well, that hasn't happened. Um, just a new system has put in, forms are filled in. And so, you know, most of my um, EU national friends who are resident, mm. I don't think one of them's gone home. A, yeah. a few people went home as a result of COVID, but... but yes, yeah, yeah. Scottish independence. Uh, there was lots and lots of speculation that Brexit will prompt a breakup of the United Kingdom. Well, that hasn't happened at the moment, and um, we're not even sure we'd have a vote in this parliament, let alone the next one. Lots of people said there was going to be a stock market crash. Well, actually, the stock market um, has done remarkably well. Um, uh, I think on the day after, or around the week of the referendum, uh, the stock market was uh, 6,338. Um, and it's now, when he wrote this article, uh, 7,403. And I think this morning it's over uh, 7,500. Eight, lower wages. The TUC claimed um, that uh, during the EU referendum campaign, that uh, wages will fall by at least £38 a week. Um, and the average earnings uh, were... This was a time when average earnings were only £503 a week. Well, now average earnings are £586 a week. Nine, lots and lots and lots of people under what was called Project Fear said that there would be an immediate recession. And this includes really sensible, you know, bright um, academics, many of whom I you know, respect, people like the Institute of Fiscal Study, um, said that there would be two years of austerity. Sadiq um, Khan, the Mayor of London, um, said that there would be... Uh, an economic dip. Um, it hasn't happened. The last thing, and, and I think this is the one that really perhaps tickled me, um, is there were lots of people who claimed, um, including Caroline Lucas of the Green Party, um, that, that, that one of the consequences would be that there'd be much dirtier beaches in Britain. Well, um, the data shows that that's not true, um, that actually the beaches continue to get cleaner. And I'm not saying this because I'm a Brexiteer or I'm not a Brexiteer. I love all this purely because there is nothing so glorious, I have to say, as puncturing um, putative experts and people who've got wonderfully powerful and influential jobs and who talk so much and profess to be so expert. Uh, I think you know me well enough and the listeners know me well enough uh, to say that I might be a professor, but I spend an awful lot of time pointing out I don't have a monopoly on wisdom. The future is very difficult to predict. We're all epistemologically challenged. We all face a problem of knowledge and we should all be a lot humbler. It would be fascinating, of course, to know how things would have turned out without COVID. But you can look at the other side of the argument. I suppose there are many people who are arguing for benefits that would come about were we to leave the EU. Uh, and I'm not sure that many of those have necessarily come true. I mean, COVID may have put a spanner in some works, but um, as Harry Fibbs says at the end of his piece, you know, um, the diversion from the EU has been extremely cautious so far. I think he uses the word cautious. Yes, very cautious. As an independent country, we've made very little use of it so far. Indeed. And, I, you know, I mean, politicians come into politics with visions and plans, um, but they're often sidelined. If you remember Prime Minister Bush, uh, sorry, President Bush in America, you know, W, he came to power really with education at the top of his agenda. Mm. Education went out of the window the day of 9-11. Mm. Um, Theresa May uh, had an agenda. Sorry, sorry, Gordon Brown became Prime Minister. Mm. He had an agenda. 
but then he had to face a financial you know, crisis. Um, Theresa May came in with an agenda, but actually felt, found herself for several months dealing with Grenfell Tower. And whatever Boris or the Treasury or the Cabinet uh, or Whitehall was planning to do with Brexit, they've had two years of COVID. You know, they got the Brexit deal over the line and within weeks, they were in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and therein lies all the history books. You know, whatever politicians and governments and whatever their mandate is, whatever they're going to do, liberalise, deregulate, reduce taxes, increase taxes, mm. take us to sort of be a, an offshore Singapore or something else, they're often overwhelmed by events. Events, that's the, always the problem. Always, always the, problem. the problem. Tim, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back with me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.